You know what? No more excuses. I will willingly choose God's fame above my own. I will stop acting as if I'm the center of the world. I will look at my apathy straight in the face and demand that it leave. No more excuses. I will both admit my addictions and cry out to the healer. I will refuse to allow the enemy to continue stealing my joy. I will stop worrying about what everyone around me is thinking. No more excuses. I will turn my heart back again. I will listen hard to the whispers of his spirit, and I will proclaim the wonders of his never-ending love. No more excuses. No games. No pretending. No hiding. No dead religion. No more excuses. Period. Amen. Amen. Keep your Bibles open to that text that Kevin Knight wrote, uh, read a moment ago. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we're going to look this morning at the subject matter, overcoming excuses and counting cost. Now, as I'll say later, it would appear to me that there's two different audiences uh, represented in our passage this morning. Probably for most of us, you will, you will relate more to 25 and following versus the first section unless you have not yet come to Christ, then the first section really says a powerful word to you. But uh, listen up, particularly when we come to verse 25. In fact, let's just read verses 25 to 27 again, just as a small segment this morning of our text. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You know, each of us has heard excuses all of our lives, and if we were absolutely honest today, we'd have to say we've used some pretty good ones too, right? Did you know that there's even a website dedicated to providing you with excuses for just about every occasion that you would need? I want you to listen to some of them. Some of them are pretty uh, silly. Here's an employee who was caught for sleeping on the job. He told his boss, you know, the blood bank told me this might happen. Here's one for husbands. But honey, I did take the trash out. The dog must have uh, dragged the bag back in. Here's a couple of school ones that have actually been used. Please excuse Jennifer for missing class yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch. And when we found it on Monday, we thought it was Sunday. Here's one of my favorites. Kind of gross. You might want to plug your ears. Please excuse 
Tommy for being absent yesterday. He had diarrhea and his boots leak. (laughs) Now, in our text today, we're going to see that such empty excuses actually anger the Lord. You know, during this time that we're in, I've heard people say, when all of this is over, I'm finally going to, and then whatever it is, you fill in the blank. But for now, they make excuses. You know, it's certainly easy to understand why people's lives are on hold to a degree. I understand that. I'm sure you do too. People are waiting to see. We're experiencing things we've never experienced before. But folks, I hope when it comes to your spiritual life, you're not making excuses and saying, one day, one day I'll think about salvation. One day I'll think about service. One day I'll get back to my Bible study. One day I'll witness to my neighbor. Folks, we need to understand that serving Christ is present tense. We're to have a present tense Christianity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now I want to set the context for our passage this morning. In verse 15, we see what the setting is for Jesus' parable here. It is a declaration probably from a religious leader. All you have to do to go back to see that is simply read verse 15. One, it says, uh, one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. So here are all these Pharisees sitting around, and no doubt one of them makes the declaration that he makes in verse 15. He says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. He assumes... Like most Pharisees and like most Israelites of the day, he assumes that he is in the kingdom. But he's not. He's self-deceived. You reckon people are in that category today? Tragically, yes. Folks, as I said, this chapter appears to address two different crowds. There may be some overlap, granted, but there seems to be two potential audiences in mind with different applications. Let's look at both of them. First of all, his words to the masses. And what are those words? First of all, he gives the gracious invitation. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. We see, first of all, here as a part of the gracious invitation, the preparation. Here's a man giving a big dinner. He's inviting many. It's the social event, or like this, the social event of the month, maybe even the year. Here's this rich guy giving this huge banquet. Maybe it's a wedding celebration. Because we know that Jesus is making a comparison between himself being 
the, the groom and the church his bride. He makes that comparison on a number of occasions throughout the four Gospels. You know, the Guinness Book of World Records claims that the biggest and most expensive wedding in modern history took place several years ago when an Arab prince was married and through a 10-day celebration costing $44 million. At any rate, this guy gives a big dinner. You see what's going on here? It's an invitation to salvation. The invitation to following Jesus is being compared to being invited to a great banquet or a feast. You know, one of the biggest myths we face in Christianity is on the part of non-believers, they think that following Christ is going to be dull and lifeless and there's going to be no joy in it but folks what is a banquet what is a feast if nothing else it is an occasion of great joy and great celebration you know Christians ought to be the most joyful people on the face of the earth regardless of our circumstances now of course we grieve over sin we ought to be broken but it ought to precisely be because we grieve over sin and we're broken that we experience celebration and joy because the Lord in his mercy and grace forgives us maybe if we were more broken over sin there'd be more celebration in our lives I mean folks just think of what we're saved for in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 22, John says there'll no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his bondservants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads and there shall no longer be any night and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illuminate them and they shall reign forever and and ever. Amen? Amen? Celebration. Well, the, um, the preparation has been made. Uh, and what do we see next? We see the proclamation. He says, come now in verse uh, 17. The word come is used 700 times in the Bible. We see it in Genesis. When God gets everything ready with Noah and finally uh, Noah is standing there at the ark and, and you remember what God says to Noah? Come thou and your household into the ark. And then in the last book of the Bible, the last chapter, what's the church say? Come Lord Jesus. And in between those two, 600, at least 698 times that that invitation come is used. Well, when we read that in verse uh, 17 here, this no doubt refers to the second invitation being given. You see, in ancient times, uh, a big wedding feast or a big celebration, two invitations would be sent out.
the first invitation would be more of what we would refer to as a save the date and asking for RSVPs. By the way, it was a great insult in the first century world if somebody invited you to a celebration, particularly a wedding celebration, and you turned it down. That's just something you did not do in the first century world in the Middle East. Turn down an invitation like that. Well, again, the first invitation would be a save the date. And then when everything was ready, then a second invitation would go out and it would uh, contain all of the details. So this is probably the second invitation. And it's saying, okay, everything's ready. Now, who made the preparations? And who extended this proclamation? The certain man of verse 16. Who is that? It's God. Here's God in this story. And and he has provided everything for us to have a glorious salvation. We're going to enjoy a banquet in heaven one day with Jesus Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Because of what God in Christ has done for us. God's made the arrangements. You can't buy your way there. You can't make all the preparations yourself to get to heaven. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. God has provided for our salvation. Folks, this is a, a difference between Christianity and all the major religions of the world. What do the major religions of the world say? You've got to do this or do that or visit this place or go here and then one day maybe you'll be good enough. But the Bible tells us that, that what, God is at, what God shows us in Christianity is he's the one that's done it. It's not man trying to work his way up to God. It's God coming down to man, sending his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God does it. He's provided the sin sacrifice in his son Jesus who takes away his wrath. He demands punishment for sin and he offers himself, he offers his son to be the one who takes that punishment. He's like the man here who makes all the preparations and then says it is done. It's kind of like Jesus saying on the cross, it is finished. Well, next we see the spurned invitation. What do they begin to do? They all alike begin to make excuses. And what are some of the excuses? First of all, some of them offer the excuse of possessions. Look at verse 18. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Now, who would buy property without first going to see it? There's another absurdity in this guy's excuse. Think about it. If it's land he's bought, it's not going anywhere while he's going to be at that banquet. It's still going to be there. The bottom line is he just didn't want to go. He didn't want to attend the banquet. Have you ever noticed when people don't want to do something? Oh, they'll they'll come up with something. They'll find an excuse. Whether it's valid or not, that's what this guy's doing. His possessions, his land, just like people today with all of their possessions. Anything wrong with possessions? No. 
enjoy them. The Bible says God gives us all good things to enjoy. But if your possessions start possessing you, if they begin becoming idols, then obviously they are wrong. You can spend your life ignoring God, ignoring Jesus Christ, and enjoying all of your abundance of possessions, and then one day you stand before Jesus Christ, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, and you go into a place the Bible calls hell. Now folks, that's not playing, on, that's not playing to fear or appealing to fear. It's a reality that's pointed out in the Bible. Hell is a real place. Another excuse we see in verse 19 is work. Look at what this guy says. Another says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. What were oxen? They were instruments of work. Kind of like modern day tractors. What represents your work? Computers? Spreadsheets? Real estate? What would it be that represents your work? Here's a guy in this story who is a businessman. He doesn't have time for this invitation. Just like today, a lot of people don't have time for God. They've got a business to run. They've got money to make. That describes a lot of people today. They have a patient to treat. They have a deal to close. They don't have time for Jesus Christ. Talk to them about Jesus Christ and they'll put it off. And they, they want to think about that sometime in the future. And then a third excuse here is relationships. Look at verse 20 still. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. I want you to think about that excuse. Have you ever met a woman who did not enjoy dressing up in finery and going out to a banquet or a nice dinner? Connie has a magnet on our refrigerator that her favorite thing to make for dinner is reservations. <laughs> Here's a man who allows relationships to stand in his way. Again, relationships are a gift from God. Family is a gift from God. But I wonder how many allow even their even their most valuable relationships in their life to hinder their walk with Christ. So you think of all these excuses, possessions, work, relationship, and some of the silly excuses that people end up offering. If you're here this morning or in the core or even watching online and you're not a believer, what's your excuse as to why you've not come to faith in Christ yet. Well, we see thirdly the expanded invitation. Beginning there in verse 21, the head of the household becomes angry. You see, there's two things that the people receiving the invitations didn't understand. They didn't understand, first of all, what they would be missing, and secondly, they didn't understand what an insult this would be to the host and how angry it would make him. 
You know, we hear a lot about God's love. We don't hear much about God's anger. But the Bible speaks of the wrath of God even more than the love of God. Yes, it speaks of both. But it speaks of the wrath of God. And the Bible says God is angry every day with the wicked. You either come now into the arms of a loving God or you stand before him one day in his wrath and he says, depart from me. Now the religious people in this day would have understood what Jesus' words here to follow meant. The head of the household says, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame. You know who those would be? The people Jesus was associating with that the religious leaders didn't like. The outcast of Judaism. Jesus said on one occasion, the prostitutes and sinners are getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. That's who this group is. And then in verse 23, the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. You know who that includes? That would include the non-Jews, the, the Gentiles. It's kind of like Jesus said in John chapter 10, I have sheep who are not of this fold. What was he speaking of there? The Gentile mission. That would begin in the book of Acts. I wonder how many today have received God's gracious invitation, the greatest invitation in all the world, but again, you're making excuses. You have every reason in the world, but like these, you're rejecting God. You know what he does? He simply offers it to someone else. Look at verse 24. The master said, I tell you, not one of those, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Folks, it is serious business to turn away from Jesus. And one of these days, all the excuses are going to run out. They're all going to fail. You know, men can make excuses to other men, but they can't make excuses to God. Now, I want you to see, secondly, his word to the interested. And here I want you to see the supreme love. We read about it in verses 25 and 26, where we read, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Folks, isn't it, isn't it fascinating as you read the Gospels, when large crowds were coming to Jesus, what did he oftentimes do? Because, you know, the Bible points out, Jesus knew the hearts of men. And he knew that some were following him for all of the wrong reasons. And so when crowds would be coming to Jesus, what would he oftentimes do? He would thin the ranks. He would throw up hurdles so that only the most determined would persist. 
the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus didn't say this to everybody wealthy, but this guy, his wealth, his possessions were his idol. So what did Jesus say to him? You've got to go and sell everything that you have and then come and follow me. And he turned away sad because he was a wealthy man. What would we have done, probably? We'd have gone groveling after the guy and said, hey, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, Let, let's talk a little bit more about this. Because I mean, somebody like that could do your church a lot of good, right? But what Jesus did, he let him go. In Luke 9, somebody else came up to him and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. We would say, wonderful, come on. But what did Jesus say? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you come after me and follow me, there may be no place in this world for you. Here in Luke 14, Jesus does the same thing. It's like he looks at the crowd and very intentionally says things to drive those away that he knows are not really serious. And he points out here, to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that he must take priority over every other relationship. Underscore verse 26. Now, notice who Jesus doesn't mention here. He doesn't say you must hate your acquaintances. The teller at the bank that you see maybe once a month. Your postman. Because people would find it easy to forget about that person. But what's he say? If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus talks about here is the most meaningful relationships you and I would ever have. Now, folks, we need to understand this Hebrew idiom to say hate. It was used as a saying of comparison. Compared to your mother and father, Jesus takes first place. Compared to your wife, Jesus is first. Compared to your own life, he's first. For example, in Genesis we're told that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. But God still made provision for Esau and looked after him. God didn't hate him in the sense that we think of that word today. In the Old Testament, likewise, God loved Israel and hated the other nations. And yet, God told Israel they were to be a light to the nations so that the other nations would come to him. Again, it, it's a term of comparison. And what he's saying is when all of the most precious relationships in our lives are laid on the table, it doesn't matter who that person might be, if we're truly his disciples, he takes priority. 
as Paul said in the book of Colossians, that Christ might have preeminence in all things. Amen? We must choose him above all. Does that describe you this morning? Now the paradox of putting Jesus first is going to mean what? You're going to be able to love those around you better than you did before. What's Paul saying in Ephesians 5.25? Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So if you put Christ first, if you love him supremely, it's going to transform your other relationships. It's not going to diminish them. It's going to elevate them. The next point, I want you to see the foundational sacrifice. Look at verse 27. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This verse picks up on the last part of the previous verse. Are we not to love ourselves? Yes, because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. He assumes we'll love ourselves. There's this drive in us to preserve ourselves. If not, we would destroy ourselves. But again, compared to him, we even set ourselves aside. And he points out here we have to carry our own cross. Today a cross is a nice piece of jewelry. But anybody under the Roman yoke would know. In fact, dating back to the Persians would know that a cross was an ugly, rugged, painful instrument of death. There wasn't anything attractive about it. But Jesus says we've got to carry our own cross. We've got to die to ourselves and our own agenda. And you know, one day we may have to do that in a literal, literal fashion, right? We may see that day coming. We may see that day even coming in America where people, if they don't abide by a certain thing, will be put into jail. Something like that occurred. Some type of persecution because of our faith. Every single one of the early disciples, church tradition says, they died horrible deaths for following Jesus. And then, of course, the apostle John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. So you and I might be called on someday to pay the ultimate sacrifice, our lives. And folks, if we're called on to do so, there's nothing strange about that throughout Christian history. We've seen that oftentimes. Christian history is littered with martyrs who have literally carried their cross to their grave. 
Would you do that? Do you love Jesus enough that you would do that? But for now, that's not what Jesus is asking. He's not asking us to die, literally. Die to self, yes, but we're to live for Him. Will we put His desires and agenda ahead of our own? That's what He's demanding here in verse 27. And he says, if you're not willing to do that, he says, you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say here, maybe you can, maybe not, you sort of can, you sort of might not be able to. He says, you cannot. Unless you and I put him above all things, even our own self and desires and agendas. We cannot be His. And then look lastly at the deliberate calculation in verses 28 and following. Jesus is drawing the net. He's drawing the net and He gives a couple of analogies here. He gives two analogies specifically. One is of a man building a tower. I guarantee you, if you're a builder, if you've ever built a home or built an office or whatever, you sit down and first of all, what do you do? You look at your finances and your resources and you make certain that you're able to carry out that project. And if you don't, you don't begin. Because the last thing you want to do is have to stop in the middle and walk away from it. The second analogy he gives, the king in battle. If you don't count the cost, not able to finish what you start, you better not start. You better not go up against an enemy if you don't think in the final analysis you're going to be able to win that war. So he's telling would-be followers, you better, you better sit down up front and really consider the cost of following Jesus. Because if you get started and don't, you're going to be like salt that becomes tasteless. The salt they would gather from the dead seed sometimes would have impurities in it or the, the salt had been washed out. It looked like salt, but it wasn't. In cases like that, after you gathered it and thought you had a fine product, you, you, were, you were stuck with nothing and you would throw it out. It fooled you, but it wasn't real. So you threw it out. And Jesus is saying that about somebody who talks like and acts like they want to follow him, get started, but they've not really counted the cost. And they're not really ready to put him first. On the surface, he may look like a disciple, just like the tasteless salt looked like the salt, but he's not the real thing. And how does Jesus end this story? By saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's like Jesus is waving a big flag to us, and he's saying, Do you, are you really listening to what I'm saying here? 
Don't underestimate the demands of Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I read a tragic story. 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic and to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two ships. Each sailing vessel carried along with it an exalt... Ex Auxiliary, tongue-tangled, steam engine, and only a 12-day supply of coal. Now, foolishly, instead of carrying additional coal, they wanted room for their treasures and their stuff. So, instead of the coal, they made room for a 1,200-volume library on board the ships, a hand organ, an organ, think of that, china place settings, cut glass wine goblets, and lots and lots of sterling silver. They carry no extra clothing, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. It was later learned from Eskimos that some of the Eskimos had seen these men pushing and pulling a wooden vessel across the ice. At a place called Starvation Cove, the remains of the 35 men who had been dragging the boat along were found in the ice. At Terror Bay, the remains of 30 bodies were found in a tent on the ice. At Simpson Strait, three protruding wooden masts could be seen poking up through the ice. For 20 years, search parties recovered skeletons from all over the frozen sea. Accompanying one clump of frozen bodies were place settings of sterling silver. Another search party found two skeletons in a boat on a sledge. They had hauled the boat 65 miles. With the two bodies, they found chocolate, guns, tea, and a great deal of sterling silver. Many miles south of these two was another skeleton alone. This was a frozen officer. The skeleton was in uniform, trousers and jacket, a fine blue cloth edged with silver braid with sleeves slashed and bearing five covered buttons each. Over this uniform, the dead man had worn a blue overcoat with a black silk neckerchief. This was the Franklin expedition. John Franklin, Sir John Franklin, and 138 men perished because they underestimated the requirements of an Arctic exploration. The tragedy there is they were not prepared for the journey. But the question is, are you prepared
for an even more important journey. A journey with eternal consequences. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand today the seriousness of naming the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to count the cost and to put you above all. Above all people, above all things, above all agendas, above all work. Lord, may it be true in our lives, may it be true in my life, that Jesus Christ will have preeminence in everything. And may that be our prayer right now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please?